close. Uh, too close. Just one more shove. I'm liable to whistle into this damn tin-pot microphone here. And I'm telling you, guys as far away as Sacramento, California, are going to find a slight buzzing in their ears. Just if I'm pushed a little too close, because I was taught over the years by my old man to whistle the way a real whistler whistles. I don't mean none of this stuff, you know, with the birds and the... There's a bluebird of happiness on my shoulder type whistling. I mean real whistling. You ever hear me do that, Lee? With the two fingers? I'll do it some night. I'll call a cab. I'll break windows for blocks around. All right, don't push me now. I've got a lot of talent. Don't worry. For a lot of things. Look at that. That's a great word. Uh, I think uh, we're, we're killing our language. It's a fantastic word. Uh, sniveling cheap jack. I don't know how that describes so many of our salesmen here at the radio station. Yet those words don't fit anymore in our, in our smooth, oleaginous. That's a nice word, too. Our smooth, oleaginous, homogenized society. Well, are you prepared in there to give me some uh, great moments in the uh, British Empire music, please? Hit it hard. That's very good. Once again, we here at this concerned radio station, and oh boy, are we concerned. Worried is a better word. Once again, we here at this concerned radio station bring you a great moment in the British Empire. Taken from the files of the daily newspapers of the world. a great moment here. Listen, listen to this great moment. And, yeah, and picture, picture the moment. you got to picture the scene. got to allow your imagination to run. And, uh, oh, incidentally, if there's anything that this show is tonight, it is uh, a straws in the wind type program. Straws in the wind type show in which we are trying to pull together all those various tiny straws which whistle through the great howling gales of night. Uh, carrying us on towards whatever that fantastic fate is that man is about to suffer. I don't know. Have you ever, have you ever really seriously thought, though? No, no. That, 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 now, I don't know why that just occurred to me. Something you very rarely think about. Have you ever seriously thought, though, what the end of all mankind will be eventually? Just, just, just a... The thought, you know, I mean, I'm talking about all of us together, corporate mankind. I'm not talking about you. What's going to happen to you? Uh, you know, I think one of the reasons why it's very difficult for most people to ever think in those terms is that because it's almost impossible for most people to separate any thinking they do from their own fate or their own hang-ups or their own involvements or, you know, whatever it is that's uh, bugging them. And, uh, and so, for that reason, the philosopher is a very rare bird in many ways. Because this is really what he does, you know. A philosopher is always concerned. Uh, he really contemplates mankind in a capital M sense. 
he, you know, he contemplates it. Uh, he holds up the sign. You remember that 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 the picture that they bought here recently, a few years ago, uh, recently, historically speaking, at the Metropolitan Museum, Homer contemplating a bust of Aristotle. <laughs> Do you remember? Or is it or is it Aristotle contemplating a bust of Homer? Or uh, you know, or is it the? You remember that terrible joke I said about that? I'll not I'll not even bother you with that one. Uh, you, do you remember that terrible joke? Well, all right. This, this, comp, this, this, in a sense, is a is a uh, condensation of a distillation of that whole concept. Homer contemplating a bust of Aristotle. Well, what what does this literally mean? This is not exactly the same as Jack Car, Jack. Uh, let's say Jack Parr contemplating a bust of Bob Hope. It's not quite the same. Or Johnny Carson contemplating a bust of uh, Merv Griffin. You see, we're a very different breed of cat in our world, and yet that kind of thing would mean more to most people today than Homer contemplating a bust of Aristotle. Sure, I'm, I, I go past this... This. Uh, the, oh, yeah, you can, you can judge... You can judge a, 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 a full, a, an entire nation, really, on the themes that it uses for its, its art. The themes, not how it does it, not how well it, it uh, perpetrates the theme, but what the theme is. This, this is the importance of, uh, of art history. And so the other day I'm walking past its very famous gallery on 57th Street where they have nothing but official art. I mean, it's very official art. I mean, you know, the, the best painters and the best... Uh, uh, the most expensive stuff. The, the, world's, the world's great insights are displayed here. And there in the middle of the window, the first, uh, right there in the middle of it, you see, is their, their big new show. And it's a sculptor, an American sculptor, of course. And it's a sculptor. And here's this gigantic, fantastic bronze, right? In the it's a bronze, by the way, done in the heroic style almost of Rodin. And there it is, the bronze. Now look at this thing. It's a, no, can't be. It's impossible. And there it is, a bronze. And what do you think is cast in this fantastic heroic mold? The Beatles. <laughs> Which, it, it, yeah, there it is. And they're in bronze. I mean, with great square jaws looking out like they're about to populate the West. Uh, not about to make a big deal at William Morris with their agency, you know, to make a, another big... Uh, <laughs> no, not at all, you see. And, and, and so you can judge, really, a, a society very much by the themes of their, their, uh, their artists, genuinely their artists. Because after all, the art, artist is supposed to not only reflect the society that he lives in, he is supposed to, in a sense, be a leader of that society. And in addition to that, he is supposed to distill the meaning of that society. Now, that, that's what the artist does, really. He's not there to uh, give you funny little shticks that you hang on your wall. That's not his primary purpose. He may wind up being a funny little shtick you hang on the wall, but that's not necessarily his, his primary purpose. And so, so uh, you, you see, you, you, you see the... the, the the, the, the theme there, the theme of what the artist works with, this is really far more important than whether he's good or not at it. Uh, now, now, uh, here, you, you, have you seen, have you seen any of the, uh, any of the, uh, op art, for example? There's no theme at all, except it's, uh, kind of, uh, hypnotic. That's about it. It's a, it, 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 yeah, really, it's, it's a, uh, 
It's a translation. Now, I'm not putting it down. I don't immediately say, oh, Shepard's out of it again. He's putting it down. Not at all. No, 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 no. Listen carefully here. Uh, the, the, the op art is, a, is an optical trick. And this is incidentally why they call it op art. It's pure trick. It's all. It's the same kind of thing that years ago. Do you remember when, when you used to see in the comics they had, uh, uh, believe it or not, remember all, all the time they had, believe it or not, there was a chicken born with 17 legs. And uh, this chicken uh, uh, lays a triangular-shaped eggs, believe it or not. Sent in by Mrs. J.M. Watanabe of Euclid, Ohio. That kind of thing. Well, now, invariably, uh, every couple of weeks, in the middle of this, believe it or not, bit, there would be this like looking like a target. It says, which way does the line run? Look at it carefully, believe it or not. This is, is this a square or is it a triangle? You remember those things? And it, they, they always vary. You don't remember them. Well, I'm sorry, honey. That's why you think op art is good. Okay. <laughs> so, so uh, well, in other words, they're optical illusions. You know, they have a thing, and you'd look at it. It says, if you look at this long enough, it will begin to appear to move. You, you do remember that kind of thing? Thank you. All right, George, he remembers last Wednesday. It's not easy. Uh, and so, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. The big, the big bit today is to not to admit that you remember anything. That's that's uh, that's very important. Oh no, no, it's part of in this. It is really. Uh, you do not remember last year's gigantic fad. So if you are deeply involved in Monty Rock, you never concede that you admit to remember Joey D and the Starlighters. You do not admit this, because by admitting that, you are also admitting you're over four years old, which is a fantastic admission to make. After all, Joey D and the Starlighters were popular in 1963. And after all, this is 1966. And what old phony remembers 1963? Holy smokes, that was before my time, years ago. Uh, so uh, the, the, the concept of op and pop, which is really just an optical illusion, and uh, the guys who were doing these things, making the triangles and the squares, were recognized, I mean, the, the, the guys who were doing it for, believe it or not, recognized they were just, you know, having fun, that's all. It was just a little shtick. But if you really want to make it big, take whatever it is that you were doing that was just kicks, multiply it by seven, and cast it in bronze, and take it up to 57th Street, and you are in bi business all the way. Why? Because most of the people who buy this stuff have uh, a nostalgia for their childhood, and they will not concede it. Uh, it is not easy to concede uh, that, that you, you have a nostalgia for your kid them. And so, uh, let's say if, if at the age of nine, the one thing that, that you were hung on was hamburgers. I mean, you really, you know, let's face it, the hamburger is, is uh, in a way, uh, the definitive statement of nine-year-oldness. Now, if that, if, that's, if that is the case now, now you are, let's say, 39. We'll just use this figure as a, as a figure right out of the, you know, just anywhere. Just take that figure. Now, let's, let's assume, however, that you are basically a klutz. Now, there are many forms of klutzdom. Uh, let's say that your IQ has hovered in the 87 mark for a long time. Once in a while, it rises to 91, and then when the wind is in the wrong direction, it may go down to 74. But let's say the mean average is around 89, roughly, in that area, which means that you're... You have, uh, you have the average talent to make a, a rather decent bowling team anchor man. Um, you're a pretty good organizer for the Kiwanis. Uh, you know, you, you, yeah, that kind of thing. 
But yet you have gone to a school where all of that stuff is is out. So what do you do when you're a displaced Kiwanis Club organizer? I mean, what seriously do you do when, when you, you, uh, you've gone to a school and you've been able to squeak by, just barely get through, and now you have this degree in, uh, let's say, a dynamic accounting, some, uh, you know, a, a true klutz field. You know, you, you've got a degree in, in uh, something of that kind. You know, you have to, what, used to be, what used to be called a clerk. Uh, nobody admits he's any of these things anymore. It used to, used to be called a file clerk, and now you're called an information collator. And you've got a degree in that. And you collate information. That means you file things. And uh, you, you, now, now you're living in a world where you have to go to galleries. And you don't like galleries. You're really basically a bowling team captain. And, you know, you, you, you bridle at, at, at the... Well, art, you know, art, the word art has always been a bad scene uh, to a guy of fairly low intellect. It's, uh, you know, he doesn't quite dig this scene. But yet you've got to go to the art gallery. So what happens? The art gallery comes to you. That's what happens. Now, how does this happen? Because you're the paying customer, ultimately. So you walk into the gallery. What do you want to see? You don't want to see what, what is this? You don't want to see uh, Brancusi's statement about existence? What is this? Get out of here. You want to see a hamburger. And so artists have leaped up to produce a giant, bigger-than-life-size hamburger, which now sits over there in the corner and has a $4,000 price tag on it. Now, you feel justified in your artistic judgment about this because this is something you relate to. And I think the growth of pop art and op art has all been connected with this kind of arrested development. Uh, not only, You know, I, I don't mind people who have arrested development, but once you give them matches... Once you, in other words, give them a credit card, and they're dangerous, uh, <laughs> because there's an old there's an old philosophical and economic law. Uh, what is uh, I have to paraphrase it. The law really reads something like this: that the that the bad will always invariably drive out the good. Which means that you let three clutches in the in the agency, and invariably within five years, the agency is a is a veritable. Uh, it's a veritable Taj Mahal of klutzdom. Why? Well, I don't know why. Maybe it's because the klutz has more vitality. Maybe because he's louder. Could be. You know, remember when you used to read about the barbarians at the gates? You didn't read about that either. Well, do you remember when you used to read about uh, James Bond? <laughs> that you remember. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Well, of course, I, I assume that you've read. Now, that's a terrible assumption, too, to make. Uh, speaking of the illiterate, would you please... Uh, oh, yeah, that reminds me. This is WOR AM and FM, New York. And now, may we proudly recommend the candy that requires you to live up to it. Regal Crown. The candy that stands on the bulwark, indubitably British, containing all the sterling qualities of that superb race. Tenacity, taste, and infinite stick to itiveness So we request, with great humility, that tomorrow you walk up to your favorite candy counter, your favorite cigar counter, and simply say, I'll have sour grapes. 
Sour grapes by Regal Crown. Regal Crown, British to the veritable core, and just a measly thin dime. Superb. Uh, you know, I, I've had... I don't know how I got on the subject. But uh, should I pursue it, Lane? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I use her as kind of litmus paper. Now, I'm not putting you down. But seriously, though, I've, I've often thought about this. Do, are you, have you ever run into the statistics about illiteracy in this country? Now, I'm not talking about people who don't know how to read. Now, let me, let me, let me explain myself. I'm not discussing illiteracy in the technical sense, which most people do. That is to say, people who can or cannot read. To me, an illiterate is a person who doesn't read. Uh, he may know how to read. That is, that is irrelevant uh, to me. Uh, knowing a skill has no meaning unless the skill is used. Knowing how to write a book is not important unless you do write. Knowing how to, and a lot of people like to confuse those two. They, they will take seven art courses somewhere, and because they know a few techniques about painting, will call themselves a painter in spite of the fact they don't paint. Uh, to me, a writer is not a writer unless he's writing. An actor is not an actor unless he's acting. That is to say that most actors whom I know, and I know many of them, are really not actors most of the time. Uh, they're hopeful actors. They're ex-actors. They're only an actor when they're acting. Now, uh, that's the, that is my definition of illiteracy, that a, that a person who knows how to read is not necessarily literate. And it's interesting to read some of the statistics on the decline of reading in this country. It's a fantastic decline. That the number of people who have bought a book in the last year, the number of people who have read a book in the last year, has become almost minuscule. Now... Uh, I can produce the actual figures, it doesn't really matter, but they are, uh, they're rapidly declining. Now, on the other hand, people will uh, confront you with the obvious argument that there are a lot of paper book stores opening up. Well, a paper book store is very different from people reading a book. And buying a paper book is very different from reading a paper book. Uh, one of the most fascinating statistics that has been... Uh, always contemplated with a certain amount of fascination, almost the way you'd be fascinated by a hooded cobra, is the statistic that bears upon that seeming paradox of people buying a paperback and reading that same paperback. In fact, I happen to have as a friend one of the top paperback publishers in the business. And uh, he, he, he's a very interesting guy. And uh, one day over, over lunch, he says, well, look, he says, I, I, I realize, he says, I'm not selling books that people read. He said, I'm buying, I'm selling things that they can carry around. He said, and that's one of the reasons why we rounded off the corners of our paper books. They can be carried better. And he said, we spend a hell of a lot more money on the covers these days than we ever spend on what goes in between the covers. Because we also recognize that people like covers. They buy a, a fascinating cover. Now, I'm not talking about the kind of cover, you know, that shows the guy with the, uh, with the chick and her, and her uh, you know, uh, she's uh, sp sprawled out there and there's a dagger sticking out between her shoulder blades and says, blood, guts, a swaggering novel of a young man's search for his manhood. And, you know, <laughs> that jazz. We're not talking about that kind of cover. We're talking about the superbly artistic cover, let's say, that encases a volume of Kierkegaard. 
or that he <laughs> or the superbly artistic cover that encases something by Joseph Conrad. Now it is he recognizes the fact that a lot of these books you see are in public domain. That's why so many of them are published. In short, it doesn't cost the publisher a red cent to go out and bring out, let's say, another version of a Greek classic. Uh, maybe a few dollars to the translator or his estate. He might have translated it in, in 1884 and his estate is still around. They hold a few copyrights on that. You pay him $10 and you publish this thing. But what you do is you go out and you get an artist, a really, you know, some top artist somewhere. You pay him $4,000 and he does a cover for you. And you've got another seller on your hand. Now, uh, th th that type of person, by the way, does not buy the 35-cent paperback. Because he feels a nagging sense of uh, he's not doing the right thing unless he pays $1.75 for it. That's called a quality paperback. And so today, there is a tremendous traffic. Now, I, I use that word in its, in its antique or archaic sense with the CK. There's a tremendous traffic. It's a great word. T-R-A-F-F-I-C-K. There is a tremendous traffic in these objets d'art. Now, they're not really books. No, a book is designed to be read. These, these are objet d'art. <laughs> and so uh, many, many a, a pad in the village and many a pad in Darien and Westport is lined with unread paperbacks. Now, the point is it not, uh, he, oh, yes, my friend went on to say, we recognize the fact that all the people promise themselves that they're going to read these. He says, they're not really uh, illiterate people. These are people who always say, I've always wanted to read uh, Aristophanes' The Birds. And so here's this fantastic, uh, beautiful, uh, pebble-finished uh, uh, cover with a, with a uh, superb drawing by Paul Clay on it. You know, it's a fantastic. It says The Birds. And uh, just a beautiful piece of business. You know, and, and he buys it for $1.75. He reads the first two pages of it. And, you know, in the John somewhere. And then uh, the, the Yankee game comes on. Or he gets a call from Chucky, or you know who knows what. And the next thing you know, it's it's uh, next to the bed on the on the bed table. And the the next pro progressive step, of course, it's now in the bookcase. And there it is, along with uh, all the other the collected. The, <laughs> you can go on down Conrad's Victory. They're all there, you see. Moby Dick, the whole thing, and these beautiful pebble color, fantastic uh, drawings, superb covers, but unread largely. Now, the statistic I'm getting at is you, you have these two statistics which seem to uh, be a paradox, one against the other. There are more books being printed. There are more books being bought today, but less books being read today. So that means then that book buying has become ritualistic. It's become a ritual. Just like religions were rituals, uh, uh, became ritualistic. Boy, I'll tell you, you can carry this ritualistic analogy even into the, yeah, even into worlds, into worlds that, that don't seem to have any relevance. For example, the automobile. Seriously. There are many cars today which are on the road which have the appearance of being a machine for transportation, but which in effect are purely ritualistic. Have you, have you seen these big, vast, empty hoods when you open them up? Or a big, vast, empty uh, uh, trunk sticking out in the back? Whereas actually all you've got is this very weak frame and this little over, uh, overloaded engine covered by a fantastic, huge, blown-up body. 
And that really is the basis of a lot of the discontent with today's automobile because you can be ritualistic about your books and about your church, but when you're ritualistic about your cars, you're liable to wind up with a busted neck. And uh, I would like to suggest that one of the very few automobiles that is not this way is the new Rover 2000 TC, a superb English automobile. Send a note to me here and we'll send you pictures about it. There was a time uh, a couple of hundred years ago when the religion, uh, when, when a guy giving a, a sermon, he was literally believed. In other words, he said, do thus and so. And they, they, uh, they read the scriptures and it says, do thus and so, live thus and so. And a guy related what was in the scripture with the way he should live, literally, absolutely, completely. In other words, it said uh, uh, there, there, was, there was a whole philosophy about, uh, well, uh, a good example would be a philosophy about poverty, about self-denial would be a better word, you see. And so even the very rich uh, would, would practice a self-denial world. They did. Uh, I, I've known people who still live like that, old rich people, you know, who go back to the 1800s. Uh, you go to their house and they serve you this little thin piece of meat and they, you, you get skim milk and they eat jello. Yeah, yeah, it sounds funny to, you know, to, to, to say a thing like this, but it, it, there was a time when in the, in many of the world's religions, particularly Christianity and some phases of Judaism, there was a belief in self-denial. Now, so what did that mean? That mean really literally self-denial. <laughs> that meant you don't have the baked Alaska, you have the jello. Uh, that meant you don't go out and buy 17 suits this week because uh, the man from England, Bond Street, is in and you order 17 suits. Yeah, the whole, the whole point, of course, was that uh, what uh, was said was believed and what was believed was acted on. Now, what happened with religion, of course, in the last uh, 40 or 50 years after that world, after that literal world, was that religion became uh, ritualized. In other words, going to church was more important than doing what they said in church. <laughs> uh, it became a ritual. Uh, and, and in many ways, in many areas of the country, it still is a ritual. And will always be now, I think, for, forever and ever. However, on the other hand, uh, what, about, what about ritualized uh, literacy? Well, to, to, to carry that analogy further, you surround yourself by books which are unread. Just as in ritualized religion, you surround yourself by the artifacts of religion. Uh, let's say uh, you have a little plastic uh, figure on your on your uh, dashboard. Uh, you you have a, a magnificent uh, a Bible that you got somewhere. You go to a, a fantastic building. Have you noticed all this great importance that's being paid today? In fact, there was an article in one of the magazines recently on church architecture. There's a great deal of importance being paid uh, to the building that the church is in. Uh, they pay a great deal of attention now to the music. and Everybody's trying to get the jazz in there. They put on plays. If you notice that more and more churches are stopping with religion and they're doing uh, plays now in church. <laughs> and usually anti-religious plays, which is fascinating. Uh, they, they, uh, uh, they have jazz. They have one, one thing or another, all kinds of totally extraneous situations. In short, the church is literally turning in, into a theater. Now, the church always was theatrical, but uh, only as a technique. Uh, today, the church is changing quite literally into a theater in many areas. We have dozens of churches in Manhattan which uh, long since have given up 
uh, what could be called the religion business. And now they present plays. And the, the minister is really in the, in the guise of a producer. He produces plays. Uh, and and uh, the deacon is a director, generally. And quite often the choir has been supplanted by a chorus. And uh, they, they, they work, uh, it's, it's a repertory theater country. Uh, and they, they produce uh, Tennessee Williams, they produce uh, whatever the producer decides to do. But it's all done as a ritualized move towards religion. That's, that's a whole new field, a whole other discussion. We will not even get into that. But getting back to ritualized literacy, which I think is even more fascinating at this point, you will find, I'll tell you this as a, as a, as a, as a man who does some writing, that there are very few magazines today who even publish what could even remotely be called uh, works of the mind. That is to say, fiction, uh, poetry, or anything that has to do with the creative mind at work. Almost all magazines have very carefully and slowly and almost usually unconsciously made the transition into what could be called uh, repertorial magazines. And so today, a magazine which used to, say, publish uh, the works of a Hemingway or an F. Scott Fitzgerald or an Ed de St. Vincent Millay or even a Norman Mailer or uh, a Baldwin, now today publishes long, involved articles on, let's say, the real Joe DiMaggio or uh, uh, Sandy Koufax's battle with arthritis. And they're, they're couched usually in pseudo-literary terms, these articles to make a pass at literariness. You see, say, well, I'm really not reading a, uh, a fan mag story on Joe DiMaggio or a fan mag story on Koufax or a fan mag story on Richard Burton. I'm really reading great literature, but what, of course, you actually are reading is a fan mag piece. But you're getting both ends of the cake, just as uh, in the case of the ritualized religion man, he won't admit that what he's doing is going down and seeing a play. He wants to pretend that he's going to a church. So he gets both possible things. He's sitting in a church watching a play. So, so uh, what in actuality he's doing is seeing a play, but he's pretending that he's in church. And so a man who reads these magazines generally is pretending he's reading literature, but what he's really doing is reading a puff piece or a fan mag piece on, say, Richard Burton. But it, uh, it may be written with great flowery phrases, and it may be written with, with usually a literary uh, or a past literary name or a borderline literary name. For example, it'll say, James Baldwin writes about Sandy Koufax's struggle against prejudice, some idiotic thing like that. And uh, so it's, it's pseudo-literary stuff, but what it really winds up is you're reading about a ball player and uh, <laughs> you're reading, really, in a sense, a repertorial piece. You find this true in almost all the magazines that we have around us today. Uh, Say what you will about Playboy, they still publish a lot of fiction. They really do. They're one of the few. Uh, in spite of the fact they also publish the centerfold out. Or maybe because of the fact that they publish the centerfold out. I don't know. This is not a puff piece for Playboy. I will say this, however, though. You find this creeping uh, articleism is really what it is. It's the article writer. It's the creeping articleism is now taking over even in the world in the world of what used to be the novel. And so you have many novels that are just thinly disguised articles, uh, which make a fantastic smash all over, like uh, Seven Days in May, thinly disguised article. Or like uh, 
oh, uh, this this White House, uh, this big White House craze we had a couple of years ago, where uh, uh, Fletcher Neville and people like uh, Eugene Burdick, uh, they're thinly disguised article writers, and their their pass at being uh, novelists is very very minimal, if if at all. The Green Berets is a thinly disguised article. Now this is the kind of thing which has slowly begun to take the place of real writing, that is to say, uh, works of the imagination. So Joseph Conrad's victory, we'll say, came out of his experience, or uh, Herman Melville's Moby Dick was a work of the imagination, based on the world he had seen and felt and understood. Certainly you couldn't say that for uh, The Ugly American, as a typical example of the non-novel. Let's put it this way, the anti-novel novel. A thinly disguised article. Now, I'm not uh, arguing against that because that type of novel has always been around. Upton Sinclair wrote that type of article. Uh, Frank Harris wrote that type of book or article. They're, they're really more articles uh, than they are books. But this has now become really, in a sense, the prior. Uh, uh, Truman Capote's uh, piece is an example. Hardly anyone will admit that reads this, anyone who reads it, that he's really simply reading. What, what used to simply be called... It used to run in three-part articles in True Detective, that kind of thing. The bloody axe murder that occurred in Kansas. Well, now it's written with a pseudo-literary ease. It's uh, written with, and that's with an E-S-E rather than an E-A-S-E. It's written with pseudo-poetic terms as he describes the blood that, that splashes across the floor. He describes it as, as, a, as a ruby-red carmine instead of uh, dripping blood. But the point is that, that anyone who reads it really is, in a sense, reading the same thing that appeared uh, for years under true detective, uh, under real-life detective stories. Or it appeared on the third page of the mirror. Uh, <laughs> it's hardly a work of imagination. But you've got to pretend that it is, and that's important in a ritualistic society. And so everywhere people are pretending that it is a work of the imagination. And part of the pretense is how hard the man worked on it. That's part of the pretense. If a guy says, well, I went out and, and I uh, uh, read the accounts and I walked around town and asked a few questions and I wrote this thing, you have to pretend, because we all know that art takes a long time to produce. So if you notice that the writer of this has made a great uh, brouhaha about it took him six years to write it. That's important in the ritualistic world. Who cares how long it took? A genuine work of art, you don't care. Who cares how long it took Moby Dick to be created? Who cares how long it took, say, for example, for Rembrandt to paint his peasant woman? Is it important? Well, a lot of bad artists, as a matter of fact, take years to turn out a bad piece of junk. I've known one old lady who has been working on the same painting on velvet of a cat for over two years. And when she finishes it, it's still going to be a bad painting of a cat on velvet. So, but, but in a ritualistic society, these things are all very important. So have you noticed that in the discussions of that book, there's always been brought up tw six years it took to write it, as if that makes it better. You know? uh, uh, who knows how long it took for Poe to write The Raven? There's no record of that. He might have written it in four and a half minutes. But a genius doesn't, uh, the time that it takes for a genius to create what, it is, what he does is rarely uh, a criterion. Some geniuses take longer than others. For example, it took Rodin something, sometimes 30 years to create a work. Well, that was Rodin. Uh, on the other hand, 
Rembrandt. Have you ever seen Rembrandt's drawings? Rembrandt's drawings made on the fly are some of the greatest pieces of graphic art ever created, and he did them in a minute and a half. <laughs> so you have two different types of men at work. But time is never discussed in, in the world of, uh, of genuine art, and yet this is part of that ritualism thing that we, we're, we're using here. This is a ritualistic uh, pseudo-literary society. So large numbers of people reading the story of a murder really uh, are reading the story of a murder, but they've got to pretend they're reading a new form. It's a new novel, uh, a, a creative novelistic form. And so you, you keep up this facade just the way people who are going to a church quite often will will keep up all the artifacts in their houses they will they will pretend uh, one thing and they'll they'll play they have uh, they have uh, albums of hymns and all of the whole scene but actually what they're doing is pursuing a ritualistic kind of 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 uh, world really rather than a real world which they actually exist in outside of the ritualistic area that they're paying obeisance to. Now, is this too involved or not? All right, now, now let's take let's take on the other hand the, the business of, of writing again, going back into a, 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 a neoliterate society. Now, it is quite natural during during a day of of, uh, of rapidly approaching illiteracy that you must find people who will explain it to you and tell you it's a good thing that this is happening. There are always, this is what is known as following false idols, incidentally. In any given phase of history, there are always people with very official credentials who will leap up and say whatever is happening is good. It's the best possible thing. As a matter of fact, are you aware that this is one of the very first things that happened in Hitler's Germany, that large numbers of very official people with doctorates after their name leaped up and said, he's right. (laughs) <laughs> and so the great vast herd of the German population uh, shrugged their shoulders as well. You know, after all, if Dr. Goebbels said so, after all, he's a doctor of philosophy, this doctor, that doctor, and so on, they, you know, <laughs> they must be right. So they produced a whole false world of genetics and God knows what else, you see, all based on the official premise that anybody with the name doctor after his name must be an official man and hence uh, knows what he's talking about. Now, every, every great movement must have its, its, uh, its apostles of correctness, its, uh, its yay-sayers, uh, to, to say that whatever the movement is, it's good. I'm sure that during the days of the fall of Rome, there were very official guys who stood on the edge of the purple swimming pool with grapes in one hand, a Nubian handmaid in the other, who wrote learned tomes that Rome was at last approaching its best days. <laughs> Absolutely, it was better. Now, who is the high... There are a lot of high priests of this new illiteracy. Uh, Marshall McLuhan is one of them. Uh, and it's... Uh, I've known McLuhan... You know who McLuhan's work. Well, I've known McLuhan personally. I've known McLuhan for, 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 let's see now, 15 years. I hate to admit it, but I have known McLuhan that long when he was a struggling professor at the University of Toronto. And... and uh, McLuhan, of course, will be confused. Uh, people will assume that because he's written these things, he's approving of all this. I happen to know something about McLuhan, personally. Uh, what he <laughs> He's a very interesting guy. And, and so, ultimately, ultimately uh, his writings will be taken, which is really, in a sense, a giant... His writing is really, in a very basic way, a giant rationale for galloping illiteracy. Uh, that uh, he's, he's for... Uh, looking at comic strips, really, as opposed to, or it is assumed that. 
uh, that uh, what he's really, in a sense, saying in much of his work is that we are living in an illiterate age, and we're going rapidly towards that in a in a breakneck pace. We're galloping. Now, what is illiteracy? Well, uh, it can be many things. Uh, sitting, by the way, in a movie house watching a movie is not literate. I don't care how serious the movie is; it is not literate. It is something else again. Uh, whatever that new definition that will finally uh, arrive, I'm not sure yet. I don't think many people are. But it's a new kind of awareness, a new, a new thing. But it's certainly not literate. Now, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not here beating the drums for, for uh, the old things. Not at all. I'm merely pointing out, let's stop pretending that we're literate. More people today read the book review section than ever read the books involved. Uh, very few people I know would dare to miss the New York Times Sunday book review supplement. Uh, because, you see, they're keeping up the ritual. It's like the same people who would not dare to miss Mass or dare to miss church. Uh, <laughs> if you ask any of these people around about Wednesday if they read any of the books that they read about last week, they'd look at you like you're out of your mind. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing. Their job is to read the book reviews and discuss what uh, Norman said about Fred's book. Uh, it's an all little in circle, which is very, very important and very involved. However, this is part of the ritualized society where the reviewer, incidentally, have you noticed that in the, in the theater, the reviewer today has risen above that which he reviews. That's part of the ritualistic world. So it, you'll find this also in the case of religions where the, the, the ministers, the, the uh, Billy Grahams, the, uh, uh, the functionaries of the church, whether, whatever the church might be, it can be the Catholic church, it can be the Judaic church, whatever it might be, the functionaries of the church have risen to become far more important than the thing that they deal with or talk about. And so to see the Pope is far more important than to be a good Catholic. Uh, to go see Billy Graham is far more important than to live by the, the, uh, the words that Graham ostensibly is discussing. So to really thoroughly understand Walter Kerr is far more important than to know what Edward Albee is all about. Uh, to thoroughly understand Eric Bentley is far more important than to really know what, uh, say, uh, uh, it's too late than to really know what, say, uh, a good example would be uh, Bertolt Brecht is all about. It's better to read Bentley than to go see Brecht. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's much better. And so if you line your rooms and your houses with books, you're okay. And spend your afternoons uh, watching the Yankees. Or uh, spend your evening down at a, a Bridget Bardot flick. You can pretend, of course, you have to use the word flick. Uh, you have to pretend that watching Bardot is a fantastic spiritual exercise in total literaceness, in, in, in the total understanding of mankind. You're not watching a set of bazooms. You're watching something else, and you're getting something else. You'd hardly ever admit that you're in the same class with that large crowd that stands outside of a Doris Day movie. Oh, no. Uh, as long as it was a, as long as it was a Swedish producer or a, <laughs> or a French director, you're in business. So if you can get both of them, get a Doris Day movie, uh, directed by Ingmar Bergman, and written by uh, Camus, you got the whole scene. When are they going to do it? It's got to happen.